Welcome to our discussion segment on Marvels of the World. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. Let's get started. Marco. Polo. <laughs> Love it. Do you have any idea where the name for that game comes from? Well, if memory serves, it came from the community pool when I was a kid. Oh, gross. Yeah. 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 How are you doing? Good. How Good. are you? Doing all right. <laughs> so let's just dive right in here. Why'd you pick Marco Polo? Why'd you find him to be such an important turning point? Primarily because he inspired a lot of explorers to continue exploring. I think that in the process of going through the experiences that he did and then transcribing them, he not only inspired people, but he kind of opened the world up. Where before, I think it's difficult to think this way now, given the internet and television and streaming services and social and everything that connects us all over the world to think how it was back then. Like if you were in Venice, Mm -hmm. you were in Venice and that's it. To travel over land was a very dangerous thing to do. Right. Traveling in the sea also was challenging. So when when some people would spend their entire lives in one place and not have any view into what lay outside mm-hmm. of their area of life. And so his his travels opened their eyes. So I think that the world just got larger. Yeah. You mentioned the uh, the Fourth Crusade. Now, we had a podcast a couple of weeks ago about the First Crusade. We talked a little bit about the Third Crusade in that one as well. But what was the Fourth Crusade? What were the motivations? What was the target? Give us a little bit of background in that. So Christian armies were uh, going back to Jerusalem to retake it after it had been recaptured by Salah Adin. Instead of proceeding on to Jerusalem, however, they decided to split from the army and sack Constantinople instead, which okay. is a slight deviation from yeah. what the original plan was. And aren't was. they attacking their fellow Christians? Yeah, it, it's interesting how that works. Huh. Okay. And do you happen to know what role the Polo family played in it? Because you mentioned his dad being involved in that crusade. Or did I completely yeah. misread that? Yeah, they were actually people who lived there. But they realized that there was an army coming and decided it would be best to leave. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I misread this. Okay. Point gotcha. for Joe, because I don't know what I'm talking <laughs> That's about. That's all right. All right. So they, they heard of a Muslim army coming to Constantinople. They were in Constantinople, correct? Yeah. Okay. So, and they heard of, there was a Muslim army coming to attack or uh, the Byzantines coming to reclaim it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it was the Empire of Nicaea. I can't remember the leader's name at the time. Okay. But he, but he was a Byzantine leader. Correct. He They were advancing towards the city, and I think hearing about an army that size coming would, would cause some problems oh, for absolutely. most people. Yeah. And so they said, let's get out of here, but they couldn't go west, so they headed east. Yeah, so it was belie- it's, it's believed that because the army was advancing from the west, they didn't want to encounter conflict going that way. So let's just go east yeah. instead. Yeah, makes sense. At that time, too, they had heard about a lot of the trade routes that had been established from travelers going there and back. So, so there, it, had, there was already trade yeah, going on. Yeah, there was. It just was not like... It wasn't how we would consider a trade route. It was known, but it was still very dangerous. Okay. So they were aware that, okay, we have these overland passes that we can take. Let's go that way instead. Were they attacked on the road at all? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. What's it like to ride a camel like 2,500 miles across deserts and mountains and jungles going from Asia Minor all the way to Mongolia? Because camels... St- I don't know if you've ever been around camels. They stink. Well, I, I can think, only imagine the... <laughs> I think to know that they stunk would mean that everything else at that time in history didn't already stink. Fair point. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe maybe the camel stunk, but it was so well accepted. Yeah. Now, I've, I've ridden a camel twice. I can't imagine it being super comfortable, but I wasn't riding for a long duration. Right. So maybe they had better saddles. Yeah. Maybe they had better accommodations. Okay. You said that Kublai Khan's palace was at Bukhara? Is that yeah. cr- is that correct? Okay, so he had moved out of Mongolia where 
Genghis Khan and Ogadei Khan. That, and that was where Kuyu one of Khan. his palaces were. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah. he traveled around. Right. Okay. Yes. Describe in in only in a way that only a a writer can. Uh, <laughs> when Marco Polo first entered the palace, I mean, you did a good job in the podcast, but just give us paint us a picture with your words, oh great writer. Yeah, I, I don't know so much about the great writer part, but it was unlike anything, especially after being on those trails for so many years and sleeping on the ground and being among camels that stink and dirt and wild animals mm-hmm. and robbers and people who probably didn't bathe very much. The idea of luxury at the time was so probably gone for that entire group that by the time Marco Polo reached the palace and he saw it in its full opulence, it wasn't even like a contrast of night and day. It was like Mm -hmm. a different universe. Really? So I think that, and and there was this longstanding, I don't want to call it a prejudice because it wasn't wholly incorrect in terms of how people viewed the Mongols. Mm -hmm. The conception was, if this is how they behaved as they advanced, there's no way they could be anything but barbaric. Right. So people were stuck in that. So I think that he carried some of that with him. And when he got there, he was like, oh my gosh, this is not what I thought it was. And again, that brings into question how authentic it is, what he said. I tend to think it is, but there's a lot who don't. I don't know how poetic that was, but it was more practical. (laughs) Okay, you don't want to describe the palace in any further detail than what you gave in the... The best description I can give is, again, the contrast. Mm -hmm. Going from rocks and dirt and probably excrement everywhere to gold and silver and art and well-cared-for furniture, you know, all these things. Had he not seen any of that stuff in either Venice or Constantinople? Because both of those cities were reasonably wealthy at this point in history. I'm not sure if in his youth he had been exposed to a lot of that side of culture. How old was he when he first got there? He was 22. 22. Well, he was he was 26 or 7 I okay. think when he got there. He departed when he was in his early 20s. So, he didn't grow up wealthy in terms of like he was cared for by his aunt and uncle mm-hmm. on his mom's side, I believe. And he had never met his dad. I just think that it, the entire experience was new. And again, it went from that contrast of the dirt and rocks and, and yeah. poop to yeah. <laughs> to So he had seen the outside of incredible buildings in Constantinople or in Venice, but to actually go inside and to see. The, the impression that it made on him lends itself to the idea that he had not experienced it before. Yeah. Where his his father and uncle had. Right. Like they were taken aback by it. It was just kind of like, yeah, here we, you know, they weren't as, <laughs> as taken aback. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Jumping ahead, we'll circle back to some of the stuff that he saw and, and all of that. But you mentioned that he, the writings of, or the travels of Marco Polo, the book, was not written by him. It was written by a friend. Is that correct? Right. The way you described it in the text, it, it didn't have a whole yeah. lot of, I mean, it was detailed, but it wasn't very personal. Do you know why the author made that choice? Or if Marco Polo had an influence in that decision? I think, actually, it was the reverse. I think Marco Polo would have been to the point more often. But a lot of the accounts were romanticized by this author who, oh, was, okay. who, who was known to glamorize things at, at the time. And I think that was one of the first questions about, is this real or not? Mm-hmm. So I think from Marco Polo's perspective, and this is conjecture, I'm not totally sure, obviously, because I haven't talked to him. But Really? Yeah, yeah. Surprise. I don't have access to the primary source. Mm. But I think he was trying to be so careful to explain every detail that he got lost in the details rather than in the experience. Whereas the author tried to add the experience, and I'll call it, elaborate right on what he was hearing from marco polo so it's almost like travelers today who are so focused on i've got to get the perfect selfie in front of every single building or monument or place that i go 
that you miss the experience of actually being in a different country and seeing all these incredible places. Yeah, that's a great analogy. But I would say Marco Polo was the phone taking the picture and uh, the writer was the person holding the selfie stick. Okay. Yeah. It's like, here's the photo and here's every detail about it. <laughs> and the person or the was just like, look how glamorous I look with a Grand Canyon in the background or the beach <laughs> or look at me trying to do a pull-up in CrossFit. I digress. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You mentioned that when he came back from his travels, he, he got involved in a war by mounting a trebuchet on a galley that he owned. Is that basically like mounting a 50 cal onto a speedboat that you own? Yeah, not very good for ship-to-ship warfare. Okay. More like a siege I, weapon I, I thought that was I, I laughed out loud when I was reading that. I thought, okay, that's that's an interesting way to... I, I'm going to go join the Navy by mounting yeah. uh, a mortar on the front of my... my... Yeah, effective against ships if he's pretty far away from them. Yeah. Not so much when they get up close, which is why he was captured pretty quickly. Yeah. Now, I don't know if he was part of a deployment for a siege i have no idea but it's just kind of like stick to exploring <laughs> don't 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 quit your day job <laughs> so he was not a particularly good soldier or sailor not he... that i've read okay no. i am limited by what i can read and most of what i've read about marco polo is limited to what he's told me mm -hmm. in his writings hmm. In the podcast, you had a fairly long quote about him describing these black stones everywhere. Was that just so we're all on the same page? That was coal, Correct. right? Okay. So the Mongols had developed. Yeah, had, they had found had, coal had found and learned how to burn it. Yeah. using it. Okay. Yeah. And they also used, as we talked about last week, gunpowder. Yes. So can you tell us, because we talked about one theory being the Europeans getting gunpowder from the Mongol invasion, which was right around this same time, uh, started a little before, ended a little after. But there's another theory as to how Marco Polo was involved in bringing gunpowder back. Can you give us a little more information on that? What I do know is that during his time serving the Khan's court, he was very busy. So I don't know how much he was able to engineer gunpowder into the way that it was used in Europe. I think that he obviously... But he learned about it, Yeah, right? yeah. He learned about it and obviously brought some back. But the way that we think about gunpowder and the way that they did, I think, are two completely different ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, gunpowder in some cases was used to start fires because it burns so hot. Gunpowder was was obviously used to create explosions in the sky, what we would call like fireworks. Uh, fireworks, yeah. yeah. Not too high in the sky, but just to the point where it, it, it looked it, pretty. Yeah, it was it was pretty <laughs> and it was something that was spectacular. Yeah. I mean now we watch fireworks like that's cool, you know. Actually they're still pretty spectacular. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry. But you should all uh, find the uh, video of the fireworks in Oban that all went off at the same time, 45 seconds of sheer chaos oh instead my. of an hour-long display. <laughs> it's it's pretty incredible. Little town in Scotland where nearly everyone in the town was wiped out by a, uh, a fireworks malfunction. I feel bad for laughing it's, now. It's Thank kind of hilarious. No, it was, it was absolutely hilarious. And but also, everybody's dead. Also, no, no, almost, almost. Okay, okay. It's like, My goodness, <laughs> everybody died. No. It was hilarious. Oh, everyone almost died. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly dying is very funny. Yeah, actually dying is not funny at all. Yeah. So I think to answer you directly, he was part of bringing it back to Europe in terms of harnessing it for firearms. I don't know how much, like, how he changed that. But his book does reference, yeah. kind of. It doesn't quite give a recipe, but it talks about how they made it, and that was another way of possibly the idea of gunpowder and cannons and firearms being right. used yeah, think, going forward within a couple generations. I think the fact that it, it could burn so quickly mm -hmm. said, like, okay, this is something that can combust well and has a charge. So, yeah. yeah. What role do you think this knowledge of the East played in the eventual end of the Dark Ages? Because that's kind of been a theme the last couple of weeks yeah. is the approaching end of the Dark Ages that we'll get to actually next week with Joe's first Renaissance period podcast. 
But what role do you think Marco Polo's writings and his adventures and his travels, and as you mentioned, opening up this wider world, had on the people living at the time when the Dark Ages ended about 100 years after this? That's a great question. I think it goes back to my first answer about opening the world up. So if you read a story about these experiences that happened perceivably a world away, Mm -hmm. and you read about these opulent places, and you read about the mountain ranges and the different valleys, and and just, just reading about all of these things, you can't help but be inspired, especially if, as I said earlier, you've never even thought of things like that. So how would that influence your creative side? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that I don't want to say that the travels of Marco Polo were a direct influence, but I think that they couldn't help but influence in some way. Just the rise of knowing that there's something more than what I can perceive in this moment. Hmm. Would you say that, and I don't know if you know this, but the wealth that he brought back and that with all these new trades coming in, specifically to Venice, was that wealth kind of not shared, but did it trickle down outside of Italy? Because wealth is a key element in the end of the Dark Ages with yeah. the creation of the people of the town, the middle class. Or was that wealth held by the doges and the leaders of Venice? So I think some of it certainly was. A lot of his wealth was confiscated when he arrived back home, and then a portion of it was taken on his voyage home. So he was still rich, but he didn't have all of it anymore. So I think that the dissemination of the wealth was kind of a natural effect of wealth being taken from you. Right. So, But even, I'm not talking just about Marco Polo, but because people followed in his footsteps, did right. they not? Yes. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Columbus was, was interested in finding a shorter route is because they were paying all these tolls. Yeah to the Mongols to get to China and and places like that. Yeah, he established what's called the Silk Road. Right. And so when he came back and he spoke about it, people realized who didn't know before that this existed. Mm -hmm. And so now you have more people traveling along that same route and becomes a very well-traveled route. And it starts bringing more and more money in. Exactly. Especially since under the Mongol Empire, there was a lot of control there, Mm -hmm. which is, again, in contrast to how people historically think of it. They think barbaric intense, all that stuff, which is true. But I mean, when you understand that a specific territory is governed by the Golden Horde, Mm -hmm. you're less likely to to act out. To get in there? Yeah, like because you remember what they can do. Mm -hmm. You remember your encounters with them. You remember that they can be barbaric. So it's like, you know what? I'm cool. I'm just going to continue on my road and trade. All right. And then just one final question. How do you miss a wall that is 13,000 miles long? Yeah, that's a great question. So That's obviously one of the primary objections to his book, Mm -hmm. is that he doesn't mention that. There are accounts of—there's one specific account. I can't remember his name. He was a Muslim traveler who went on the Silk Road four years after Marco Polo got back home to Venice. He was within miles—from what I've read, he was within miles of the Great Wall of China— Asking the locals where it was, and they had no idea. Really? Yeah. So so I, this very narrow focus of your world being just, you know, within a couple hundred yards of your yeah. home, that was not unique just to medieval Europe. Correct. That was true also. Correct. Because again, like, it's very easy for us to look through modern lenses when we think about how the world... Google Earth and see how... Yeah, see yeah, it. yeah. But even leaving your village or your house, that's a place of security. There's a reason why in school you learn about hunter-gatherer groups where your entire purpose is just to survive. It's only when you have a governing structure of some kind that you can actually do other things Mm -hmm. than just try and survive. You can pursue hobbies. You can pursue crafts. You can do other things. You can invent things. But I mean, when especially when you get into the wilds of Asia, it was very much like, Yes, this is a governed territory by the Mongols, but it's also middle of nowhere. nowhere. 
So there wasn't a big push to be like, you know what? It's Saturday. I'm going to go see the Great Wall of China. No, it's it's very much like, no, I'm here. I'm good. I'm going to farm. I'm going to live, and I'm going to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said that was my last question, but I actually thought of one more, so I lied to you. My apologies. Set the stage for us, because next week we're going to be continuing this widening of our world. Draw us a line from Marco Polo to Christopher Columbus and how Europeans specifically, their worldview continues to expand over the next 150 years. Sure. I think with the Silk Road in existence now, it opened up this trade route. And so if there was a whole other world in Asia that to many people didn't exist before, the question now becomes what else exists out there? Mm -hmm. Where else can we go? And so though Columbus was trying to find an easier route, aside from traveling that Silk Road, there was still that sense of wonder, just like we know that Marco Polo, he didn't discover something, but he made us aware of something. So in those terms, what else can we be made aware of through travel, through exploring areas that we haven't been to before? And so I think that his venture into Asia made the world much larger. And so now that people realize the world could become larger, how much larger could it get? Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining us in our discussion of Marvels of the World. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you hear this podcast. It really does help. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.